They have similar need. Ones on tenure track will have a need to probably to do more research and support for the research function is a real important part of faculty support in those institutions. But there's a lot of faculty who are on contract. They have maybe multi-year contracts, maybe their only annual contract, and their primary role is as a teacher. So I would say that their focus is entirely on teaching. And so you think about that, that implies a robust system of support. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Gardner. Hi, Brad. Hey, Tiffany. Today, I'd like to do a little movie trivia for you. Oh, my. You're so dangerous. In what movie did the main character say, good morning, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night? Ooh. The answer is The Truman Show. Oh, I love The Truman Show. Yeah. Yeah. Jim Carrey. Jim Carrey. We watched that in school. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have nothing for you. You don't. You don't tell me you're going to do these things when I've got nothing prepared. <laughs> Just kind of pops into my head. <laughs> I have no control over it. <laughs> Today on Digital to Learn, we are bringing to the show Walt Pearson. Since 2019, Walter has been the editor of the ACHE's peer-reviewed journal, the Journal of Continuing Higher Education. From 2013 to 2018, Walter Pearson served as the Dean for the School of Continuing and Professional Studies at Loyola University in Chicago. His prior service in higher education includes service at Lewis University, St. Edwards University, Simpson College, and the University of Missouri in Kansas City. Pearson has also worked with the Service Employees International Union and the United Farm Workers. In the consultant field, Pearson has conducted enrollment management and program reviews at numerous major colleges, universities, and workplaces. He earned his BA in labor studies from Antioch University in 1984. In 1986, he earned his MA in adult and continuing education from the University of Missouri in Kansas City. In 2000, Pearson earned his PhD in adult and extension studies from Iowa State University. Pearson earned the ACHE's Outstanding Credit Program Award in 2005 and 2010. We're so excited to welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast, Walt Pearson. And it's so wonderful to have you here, Walt. Thanks for being here. Glad to be here. I first learned about Walt on LinkedIn. I had seen some of the things that you posted covering all the major areas of conversation in higher ed right now. And I wondered how you were staying abreast all the different things and did a little bit of digging and saw that you were an editor for the Journal of Continuing Higher Ed, which made sense. You see a lot of articles come through and a little bit more digging and saw some of your very own publications and was inspired by those. And I'm just so grateful that you said yes to coming onto the show to expand a little further. So thank you. Thank you for having me on. Yeah. The way that Brad and I do things is we start with some getting to know you questions just to get a feel for who we have here on the show, the man behind the curtain. So Brad, would you like to kick us off on those getting to know you questions? Absolutely. So how is your career different today than you might have anticipated 20 years ago? 
Well, I'd say the biggest change is really the subject of this podcast, which is really online learning. We were barely beginning to think about that in 2002. It's a, an ubiquitous fact of higher education today. So I think that's probably the biggest difference for me. Otherwise, I think things are still pretty similar. A lot of the same issues that I think I was confronting in 2002, I think we still confront today. Just the biggest thing is some changes in demographics. But I think the big thing for me is, is really the way in which we've turned to online learning across the board. Putting you on the spot here, but when online learning started to emerge, would you admit to being an early adopter, an early enthusiast about that? Or was it something that originally you were thinking, no, this doesn't have the traction? <laughs> well, I'm laughing, I was, but I'm curious. I would say I started experimenting with online learning in would have been probably about 2005. So those are my early experiments with it. So I'd say I'm a moderately early adopter. I was a little skeptical at first, but I'm really going to be an advocate of online learning. Absolutely. And I recognized us. So I just ask that because I think right now too, we are in online learning, but as we start to hear more and more about VR and the metaverse and what that has to do with education, I'm feeling sometimes a little skeptical and I think, oh no, 20 years from now, am I going to be that person that's looking back like, oh, I don't really want to admit that I was a little leery here. So just curious to know with the transition to online learning, how you felt about it at first. So thanks. Thanks. I think it's important to put in perspective the fact that just like in a classroom, online learning can be really, really good, or it can be really, really bad. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It's true. Yeah. I think that our kind of experiment on the run with online learning during the pandemic has taught us that lots of people can do it really terribly mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. mistake the process of knowledge transmission for education. Education is really about the development of habits of heart and mind, uh, to quote John Dewey. And what we did a lot of times during the pandemic, you know, people lecturing for an hour long, three days a week was really horrible. Yeah. <laughs> and I think if you look at the programs which are native to online learning prior to that, you see a lot more depth and experience with it. And to the extent that we were able to transmit that depth and experience to our colleagues from across the university, then we achieved some good successes. All right. Well, this one's getting more personal. How would your colleagues describe you? Well, I'd say they'd say that I've kept my focus on a few things. And those are really, first of all, academic quality, kind of focusing on keeping academic quality at a high level, providing convenience and flexibility to adult learners. That My career has been focused on serving adult learners, and convenience and flexibility are very important to them. Marketing effectively. I think that's something that I've done well, and that's something that really requires attention when you're, when you're building online programs. And then finally, providing affordability. So Academic quality, convenience and flexibility, marketing effectively, and providing affordability is really important. And I I think ultimately our job is to help students, adult students, to lead effectively, to succeed in their career, and make meaning in their lives. And each of those things require a different sort of focus for higher education. But 
And it comes from my background of leading in faith-based institutions. I've, I've led at Simpson College. I've led at St. Edwards University. I've led at Lewis University. Finally, at, at Loyola University of Chicago. So that gives me a unique perspective about the importance of mission in, in higher education. Thank you. That really resonates with us too. So I, I don't know if I even included in our introduction that we work at Indiana Wesleyan University. So that was another factor that drew us to your work. So Walt, if you needed an alias, what would you choose for yourself? I'd say John Dewey. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> You've already quoted him. So he really set himself up. That was, there you go. <laughs> that was very strategic of you. I love it. So what's the thing you love most about John Dewey? Oh, I, I just think that his work speaks to all of us in education, whether you're working in primary or secondary or in higher education, his emphasis on the importance of really the use of the scientific method in, in education to encourage students to have real experiences, to try to question kind of what that experience meant, to form a hypothesis going forward, to test that hypothesis. That's really the way in which you think that experience, reflection, theorizing, application, that cycle. If you do that every week in your class, experience, have students construct some experiences or have some experiences and then have them reflect, think about the dimensions of that experience, then think about theorizing for solutions to that and then applying those and seeing how they work. That is so powerful for all forms of learning, whether you're teaching in the classroom or you're teaching online. If you think about the construction of the learning experience around that cycle, it has profound impacts. And I love what Dewey said about that education is really about the formation of the habits of heart and mind. Think about kind of how we want to transform each student's construction of knowledge so that they're owning what they're learning. And I think too much of education is about the passive transmission of information and not about the formation of judgment. The alias question was of particular interest to me because when we launched a webinar series this past spring and had a bit of a Zoom glitch, you had to continually, every time you wanted to log in, you had to register and register again. And we didn't have time to slow down and figure it out. But in the meantime, Brad over here created a different alias for himself every time he logged into Zoom. So when I went to check the registration list, I'm like, who is, there's all these rock band stars and actors. And I'm thinking, who are all these people? I don't remember coming to these webinars and it turns out it was just Brad logging in a few times. So. <laughs> kind of fun. That was great fun. It was great fun. I'd love to see John Dewey pop up in my webinar registration list. I he probably know. will. He probably will. Yeah, <laughs> now he definitely will, I can say. You can practically guarantee it. <laughs> That's right. Walt, would you consider yourself to be John Dewey's evil twin? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I hope I'm, I'm just an acolyte. <laughs> <laughs> hardly. I can already say hardly. <laughs> All right. Oh, my goodness. That would make this podcast especially interesting. All right. You participated in building the number one in Illinois, number eight in U.S. online degree completion. There's all kinds of other fun facts about you we shared in the bio and folks can find on LinkedIn. But what have you learned in the process of building these online degree programs and opportunities? Well, I've already talked about some of that, but I think the first lesson I would say to everybody is 
this is not something that necessarily faculty need to think about, but as an administrator, I think you need to think about it long and hard. How do you market effectively? Because adult learning is, there are no lists you can, in traditional admissions, you can go out and buy the lists of everybody who's taken the ACT or the SAT, and then you can parse that list about who fits best for us. There is no list for adult learning. You've got to try to come up with a way of building your list, getting people to inquire, and then nurturing each of those inquiries into an application and that sort of stuff. And so that requires a level of thought and investment of both time and attention and money to the marketing process. I, I don't think a lot of faculty are really as aware of that as probably they should be because adult learning program has got to spend some money on marketing and you can spend too much money on it. I've <laughs> seen institutions spend 15, 20% of their revenue on that. That's a real problem. But thinking about where do we spend it? How do we spend it? How do we build those things? And then most important, taking each prospect and working with them carefully to nurture them into being an applicant and then to a finished application process and enrolled in, in the program. All those are really critical steps to having our classrooms full. And I think that's something that really is really important. And the other thing I think is to be really transfer friendly. One of the things that one of the agencies did was a study of what happens to transfer students when they transfer. And one of the things that they found was that transfer students lose on average 16 credits at transfer. So in the process of transferring, people lose a full semester of transfer credits. That's really crazy. We need to change that so that credits come in. They might not be able to apply them to our specific degree requirements, but they definitely should apply to the degree. So being more transfer friendly is a really important part of this. The other thing is get students started really well. Provide a rousing orientation. Get them excited about being in college because people are approaching college with a lot of trepidation. They're afraid a lot of ways. You know, am I good enough? Will this actually work? Can I fit this into my life? all those things. So give them a rousing orientation, get them started well, and work really hard through good advising to enable each transfer student to be able to succeed. There are very few adult students who are not transfer students. So just think about them, how do you serve transfer students well? It's really important. And then getting to the subject of this webinar is really thinking about how do we support each faculty member in doing their job? faculty are really the people spending time with the students. Now, that's where the rubber meets the road. Faculty need to feel completely supported and enabled to do a really good job of teaching. And that's really the, one of the most important things that we can do is spending time on building and supporting academic quality across the board so that faculty know that they have an opportunity to use rigor. They can, they can work well with students. They know how to assess students' learning, they can provide good feedback, they're effective at constructing the learning process. All of those things are really important. Using all of the tools to helping with learning design uh, and giving good support to faculty across the board and throughout their career, I think helping continue to develop that is really important. Uh, and I just think the most important part of a relationship between an administrator and the institution is to really listen to faculty. 
faculty are the ones who are spending all of the time with the students and, and they're much more aware of what's going on with the students than administrators are. So that's real important. And then I think the other thing is to bring down the cost of the degree. And how do we do that? We do that through being transfer friendly to make sure that we're not losing credits at, at transfer, providing liberal prior learning assessment or recognition of prior learning options and good testing so that people can use tests as a part of their degree program. And then helping students maximize grants, uh, providing scholarships to help support students. One of the things I was really proud of that we did at Loyola was we, we provided a number of scholarships. We were able to support fully students who were on the Pell Grant to be able to cover their tuition through other scholarships in the Pell Grant. And we also matched tuition support. So if they got $5,000 in tuition support, they got $5,000 in scholarships from Loyola. So I think that's real important. So the goal is to bring down the cost for all the students. Where do you think people, let's say they read the article and they look at those different categories and they think, yeah, we're really aiming to do that. We haven't perfected this, but we're making progress in all these different categories. Is there one or more of those areas that they're just struggling? <laughs> I, you know, I look at institutions. One of the institutions I served, I think their marketing budget is no bigger today than it was when I was there and mm -hmm. it was years ago. So that sort of lack of attention to putting resources into the support of the program is one of the flaws that I see in a lot of higher education institutions. So lack of attention to marketing. And then I think a lot of times some administrators don't have the same faculty background that I do. And so they don't bring the same resources to the discussion of kind of supporting faculty. That's the area that I think I see a lot of people falling down on. They're just not, hmm. they're not equipped to support faculty in the way that I think faculty should be supported. That's one of the things that I think is one of the flaws of a lot of adult learning programs is that they're just not, they're not structured to really have a good system of support for faculty. Or to what extent has your work intersected with kind of the difference between full-time faculty and adjunct faculty? So numerous institutions now rely heavily on adjunct faculty. We're talking about faculty support. Does faculty support look different for our full-time folks and our adjunct folks? And should we approach those two populations differently when we're aiming to create support structures? Well, if you think about the way in which the faculty workforce in America divides out. You've got all of the full-time faculty, some of whom are on tenure track, some of whom are contract faculty, but they have similar needs. The ones who are on tenure track will have a need to probably to do more research and support for the research function is a real important part of faculty support in those institutions. But there's a lot of faculty who are on contract. They have maybe multi-year contracts, maybe they're on an annual contract. And their primary role is as a teacher. So I would say that their focus is entirely on teaching. And so you think about that, that implies a robust system of support for faculty across the board. And then there are within the adjunct faculty, really two categories. One is people who are teaching because they haven't gotten a full-time job someplace and mm -hmm. would prefer to be a full-time faculty. Mm -hmm. And then there are lots and lots of others who teach on a part-time basis because that's what they want to do uh, because it's kind of interesting and they can do this in addition to the rest of their career. 
all of those have slightly different needs in the faculty development process. And I was fortunate to work in a system where at Loyola, I had contract faculty and for the most part, faculty who just were doing this because they wanted to participate in this way. And we didn't have a lot of adjunct faculty who would have preferred to be full-time. And I just think thinking about the needs of each audience gives you a slightly different strategy to use in the faculty development process. So I just think about all those broad categories. That's a way of thinking about kind of who are we talking about here when we're talking about a faculty development process. If it's a full-time faculty on tenure track and they want to know how they can get a research agenda going, that's different than the part-time faculty who wants to know how I can teach more effectively and teach more efficiently. Mm-hmm. If we could flip that a little bit, what do you think online students are wanting from their faculty members? Well, they want attention <laughs> and they want for information to be well organized. And I, I'm a fan of using templates for online courses so that students They'll know where to look for things. I think a fairly detailed syllabus is a really essential thing. Having clear outcomes that you're asking for and making clear to students what you're hoping they will get to is a really important part of the construction of a course. And then sort of what are the appropriate mechanisms by which you will go about assessing their learning, making sure those are fair and clear. That's really important, I think. We're going to pause right here on the Digital to Learn podcast and be back again next week with Walter Pearson. In the meantime, please check out our website, digitaltolearn.com. Follow us and share our resources on our social media, LinkedIn, as well as Twitter at Digital to Learn. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, Give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.